This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principal and author of the books School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Blaine, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And the Center for Cyber Ethics is proud to be the producer of the Cybertraps podcast. The Center for Cyber Ethics is a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. And greetings again, Jethro. Well, happy Monday, Fred. What is going uh, on with you? <laughs> it has been uh, relatively quiet. Um, we Did we talk about Champagne Ford, uh, the presentation I did for them? Uh, briefly, we knew that it was happening, but tell us more about it. Yeah, this uh, was a very serendipitous meeting. I, I bumped into the president of the Champagne Ford ROE number nine, which regional office of education. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't look that up, but we got to talking. Uh, she was in New York for a conference and uh, out of that conversation, utterly random and thank you universe. Uh, we ended up agreeing to have me come in and do a two hour presentation on perhaps for educators 3.0. 
to newsletter.cybertraps.com. There's an additional resources page. Uh, folks are welcome to download a copy of the presentation I did, check out some of the other materials that I put together. So that's been the most recent uh, professional outreach. Other than that, it's just grinding away at the writing projects. So we have something to talk about. Oh, excellent. So the newsletter.cybertraps.com is definitely an amazing resource that um, Fred sends out this incredible weekly digest of what's been going on over the last week. And it is awesome. So we talk about a lot of stuff here on the show. But there is a lot more that Fred does behind the scenes as part of that newsletter. So definitely check that out. And it is very worthwhile for sure. Um, yeah, I appreciate that, Jethro. I do want to just give folks a quick heads up that we always include links to our um, Cybertraps podcast. And this week is special because uh, actually an upcoming guest for the podcast, uh, Dr. Cheryl Shakeshaft, who is a researcher at Virginia Commonwealth University, is looking for school districts and schools to volunteer to get free safety training to minimize uh, the sexual abuse of students in schools. And there's more details in the most recent issue of the newsletter, again, at newsletter.cybertraps.com. Um, there's contact information for Dr. Shakeshaft. So if schools are interested in exploring that, I really urge them to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is really good. I appreciate you sharing that. I'm looking forward to, to our interview with her. Um, this last week, I went down to Utah and toured a school called the Catalyst Center. And this place was amazing. Uh, not only was it a really cool school, but when I walked in, guess what was up on the screen? My logo, the transformative principle logo was up on the screen and it, under the welcome banner. It was so cool. It was such a nice uh. touch and made me feel really <laughs> special. Um, so yeah, that's, so what's the school? What? Yeah. Let me get into that. <laughs> so the school is a career and technical education school, but it is not like wood shop and big machinery type stuff. It's more of a tech focus, but there is, um, some medical assistant training there as well. And the idea, and this is, as you know, very close to my heart, the idea is that kids are working on real-world projects and actually doing something meaningful and valuable. So um, one of the teachers had stitches in his thumb, and the medical assistants were going to remove the stitches from his thumb later that day after I had left. So, yeah. like, giving kids, I know, right? <laughs> But if you want to be a medical assistant, <laughs> then you kind of need to be able to do that stuff. Um, so, right, which explains why I'm not. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So one one of the things that we talked about was um, I visited the audio video class and they do uh, video and audio editing and including podcasts. And so we're hopefully going to be able to do something in collaboration with them at some point, which I think is just awesome um, because kids are really cool and they can do amazing things. And um, it's pretty neat when we give them that opportunity. Oh, that's awesome. I think in our show resources today, Jethro, there is a, uh, an article about kids who do a podcast on screen time and some of the other issues that arise. And I think that kids are really doing such amazing work. When you think about the creativity of starting a podcast or doing some kind of vlog on YouTube or what have you, um, it's really impressive stuff. So it is. Uh, we ought to think about getting some kids on at some point. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think we can have a, a good group of kids from there. I recently had some kids on my um, Transformative Principle podcast. It's actually mm-hmm. for a new podcast that I'm starting called Student Driven Learning. But we'll get into that when that becomes more real. But the thing is, is these two kids came on and talked about their school experience. And it was amazing. It was so, so cool to hear them talk about their way of learning in a really powerful way. So anyway, I loved doing that. It was great fun. Really enjoyed the the opportunity to do that. So uh, with that, let's talk about our, our show today. We're going to talk about screen time. So Tell us, <laughs> tell us, Fred, what is screen time? Oh, boy. This is, well, this is a new phenomenon, we, right? It just started yeah, no, with I, the I, pandemic, I, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, nobody's been worried about this at all until now. <laughs> um, no, this is, this is an old, old topic. And to give you an idea of how old it is, actually, you know, the real screen time debates really circled around television when I was a kid. How much time should, you know, little Johnny be sitting in front of the screen watching cartoons or whatever else was on, um, you know, turn off the damn TV and go outside and play was a not infrequent (laughs) statement. So uh, this is a long running issue. And if you take a look at the stuff that we've got in the show resources, I mean, obviously TV, um, even, you know, before the introduction of computers in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, people are, are beginning to be concerned about the activity levels of kids, the effect on their bodies from watching TV, and to uh, you know a lesser degree, what is actually being shown to them, like are cartoons violent or are they staying up too late and watching things that they shouldn't be watching? Well, we've just blown that out of the water, haven't we? Absolutely. <laughs> Because, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, you begin to see personal computers come into play. Parents oftentimes lagged behind their kids in terms of technology, which made it easy for kids to spend all the time they wanted using these devices. Then you start getting computer games, which are hugely immersive, even the, you know, 8-bit graphics that Mm -hmm. we had back then. And then, of course, we move on to... um, game controllers, we move on to cell phones, we move on to smartphones. And we've gotten ourselves to a situation where, according to a recent common sense media study, teenagers are spending roughly nine hours a day on entertainment using a screen. Now, that could include TV, that could include movies, games, Um, sometimes, you know, social media gets classified as entertainment. So there's a lot of things in the mix, but the sheer amount of time looking at screens is unquestionably much, much higher, uh, when I was a kid and certainly even before the pandemic, by some estimates, we've doubled kid use of screens just in the last two years. Yeah. I I think that that is probably pretty accurate and, um, thinking of a kid using a screen for nine hours per day, um, you when you think about that, you're like, well, they're at school all day, and then they come home and they're basically on the another screen until you know midnight. And to be honest, there's probably some accuracy there, and something that is perhaps a little a little much. I mean, my screen time has certainly increased since the pandemic, and um, and and it has. 
you know, gone through phases. Sometimes there's a lot of social media use. Sometimes there's a lot of game use. Sometimes it's a lot of watching TV shows and movies and things like that. Um, but overall, just being at my computer all day long is right. is very typical right now because if I'm doing something, I'm probably using a screen to do it. And um, like I'm not, I'm not at school interacting with kids anymore. And so like that was (laughs) my screen time was down way lower before because I was there doing stuff with kids all day long. Well, and, and this is the thing, right? I mean, some of this was absolutely unavoidable because, you know, if you're doing remote learning, by definition, screen time is going to go up. You know, there's, there's no other way to get around that. And of course, the nature of the lockdowns and the fact that parents were working at home, I think increased the burden on parents in terms of what kind of supervision they could do and their need to get their work done. And so there was, I think, a completely understandable rise in allowing kids to just use their devices so that parents could function, Yeah, you know, in this weird world that we had. I think the thing I want to grab onto, and, and, and maybe we're in the position now where we can start trying to reset how we handle these things and what kids are doing. The thing I really wanted to highlight was the dramatic increase in for younger kids. So there was a study of over 5,000 kids from 2021, and fully a third of sixth graders, 11-year-olds, are using a smartphone. And when you get up to ninth grade, you're talking 91%. It's a staggering number of people carrying incredibly sophisticated devices. And we always come back to that idea. Do they have the wisdom and the experience to understand the risks of those devices? And all too often, the answer to that is no. You know, particularly in a school environment where they're interacting with adults, i.e. educators, who are often using the same apps and services that they are. Mm-hmm. And and this is a really fascinating piece to think about because so much of what we do is more convenient to have an electronic way to do school like that certainly makes it easier to be able to turn stuff in online and things like that. And that's that's way easier than having to print something out every time and, you know, having to forget it in your backpack. You're there on the computer and you just hit submit or you forget it, so you go onto your phone, access that document, and then hit submit. Those things are definitely super convenient and really enjoyable. But at the same time, 91% of ninth graders, I mean, that's just wild. That is nine out of every 10 kids. <laughs> that's crazy. And it, it, Yeah, and, and the thing is that we're not talking, we're not just talking a cell phone so that parents can get in touch with their kids or schedule pickups or things like that. We're, we're talking a publishing device, you know, that in many cases is the equivalent in computing power, if not greater than a Chromebook mm-hmm. or something like that. So um, it, it, we can talk in terms of our responses and solutions later on in the show about, you know, whether or how parents can dial that back. But I think that, that we the next thing we should probably wade into here is the debate about the impact of that, right? Yeah. And, you know, there is legitimate argument about it. Yeah. And, and I'll start by quoting Heather Staker, who we had on the podcast before. And she said, nobody really cares about screen time if kids are doing something productive. 
and everybody cares about screen time when they're wasting time or doing what we perceive as wasting time, right? And and that right. I think need to remember because. Go ahead. You broke up a bit. Because we bring our. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because thing that's an important thing to remember because as adults we're often trying to impose our values on kids you know in terms of judging what they're doing and how they're using these devices and kids you know are emerging people right they're going to have their own opinions about the value of what they're doing so there's a balance to strike there as well yeah absolutely so it helping kids find productive things to do with devices is certainly beneficial and definitely something uh, that is worthwhile. Um, but I think when we recognize that we often see what kids are doing as not meaningful or not valuable, it's easy to judge them. And it's worthwhile to take a step back and be curious about what they're doing rather than instantly saying, mm. put your phone away. You're not doing anything useful. Like my son said to me the other day, he said, well, maybe dad should get off his phone and do something to help out or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun discussion, but at least he understands that screens can oh, that be must distracting. Have been <laughs> <laughs> well, and look, we make we we make a point in, in as many shows as we can to remind adults that they need to serve as role models for their children. Absolutely, right? And yep. and that distracted parenting is a serious issue. Yeah, I mean, there's the extreme cases like don't be a distracted parent when you're driving your kids around. Right. You know, that's obviously incredibly dangerous. But even in the course of, you know, family life, don't dive into your phone to the exclusion of your child who may want help with homework or just want to talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we mentioned them last week, but I think it's worthwhile here to mention them again. Pinwheel is a company that helps you make uh, better decisions with your family and especially your kids' use of cell phones. And so you can turn it off at different times and things like that. There's a link to Pinwheel in the show notes. You can you can check that out. And I think doing whatever you need to do as a parent to make this conversation better and easier is important. Um, I, I'm curious about the recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics um, and if these have been updated because of the pandemic or if these are the 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 ones that that have been for several years now well i've been studying this for a while as you know both yep. for cyber traps for the young and, and cyber traps for expecting moms and dads and they have updated them recently so for uh infants and toddlers they're drawing a bright line that until the child is older than two ideally they have no screen time exposure whatsoever uh, what's whatsoever, um, with the exception of maybe sitting on a parent's lap and talking remotely to a grandparent or an aunt and uncle or something like that, because the context of that is obviously very nurturing and, and developmentally appropriate and so forth. They, the one that they really changed was the second one, which is their recommendation that children ages two to five have no more than one hour of high quality screen time per day. Now you can get into a great debate about what exactly. constitutes high quality screen time, but obviously they're talking about educational components, things that um, push the child's creativity, their reading development, so on and so forth. They say any child over 
the age of two, including up to 18, <laughs> should limit their screen time to no more than two hours a day. Well, that, of course, is patent, you know, for yeah. this contemporary generation. So they cut it off at five. And then the other thing that the American Academy of Pediatrics underscores is the importance of parents not using these devices as a babysitter, which is very much what they were talking about with television mm -hmm. 40 years ago uh, when I was a teenager. And, you know, that makes that makes good sense. And one of the problems we face is that these devices are so easy for children to use, even very young children. So the average age of first using a device is below 10 months. Yeah. I mean, they're not even a year old and they're already swiping right. Hopefully not on Tinder, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Brad, that was not a good one. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, All right. Yeah, really. So how, how are we doing with this? We totally stink at it, right? As, as a society, we're giving our kids access to these devices. We're using them as babysitters. And it, uh, I'm sure that many would argue that screen time was way too high already, and now it's even higher. And I can't imagine um, I can't imagine in most households that kids two to five are on the screen for less than one hour per day. I mean, I just don't I just don't see that being practical in most of the families that I personally know and extrapolating that to other people who are in different socioeconomic statuses. Um, and wasn't there something about uh, I think there's a link in here about um, families that have a lower socioeconomic status spend even more time on it. Did I read that right? I just glanced at it and saw it. You did. Yeah, you did in fact read that correctly. And I think that that, um, well, then the specific, that's from Common Sense Media, where they determined that lower income tweens, so what are the tweens, Jethro, you know, that 12 to 14, roughly, or uh, 11 like, to 14? Yeah, like 10 to 14, probably. Okay. So anyway, for lower income tweens, they're entertainment media usage or entertainment screen time can be as much as three hours more per day than kids in higher socioeconomic. That's okay. Uh, there's a siren going. He does live in New York. That's proof because all you know about New York is that there are always sirens outside. So, so these these kids who are in economically disadvantaged situations are using devices way more than others, which is ironic because you think of devices as more expensive. Um, and so how could they possibly get them? But this is something that I saw in Alaska all the time, that even families that were struggling very much financially, there were there were smartphones aplenty and and they found ways to make it work. Well, there's one other piece to that, Jethro. Um, certainly, we've talked about the cascade of older models exactly. flowing downhill, right? I mean, the pool of available digital devices is massive, which makes it super ironic when you read reports about all of the tech titans who don't let their kids have digital devices, many of which they've designed and built, yeah. like the Jobs Kids didn't were not allowed to use digital devices until they were adults except under really tight scrutiny and that ought to tell us something 
These are people who know better than anyone else, not only what the impact of these de devices are, but literally how they're being designed mm -hmm. to grab our attention. And if they're not willing to let their kids use them, there's a real statement in there that we should observe. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think that that goes nicely into the next piece of some of the positive benefits of non-screen play and how that mm -hmm. develops you physically, it develops your brain, your language, critical thinking skills, all that kind of stuff. Um, and what is what is really amazing is as a school principal, um, I would see that kids very often would come to school and not know how to play games with other kids. They didn't know how to be imaginative and make up their own worlds and, and do their own things on the playground. And it was really interesting to me when I first noticed that, that, that kids didn't really know what to do. And I went outside on recess duty and was just observing the kids. And I would see kids just like wandering around and I would ask them like, what are you, what are you doing? I'm just waiting for the bell to ring so I can go back to class. And it's like, well, don't you want to be out here playing? Well, I don't really know what to do. And then I'd say, well, if you don't know what to do, like, why don't you go find a friend and start playing a game with them? Well, I don't know any games to play. I said, well, what if you just made up something? I, I don't know how to do that either. And I was just dumbfounded that that was happening. Yeah. But yeah. we put some things in place. There's this company called Playworks that we contracted with to help teach our kids games. And, um, and it was a really cool thing because there were so many games that they have that that helped kids learn how to how to interact with each other and play these different games. And it was really, really, I'm really glad we had that, but I was really sad at the same time that our kids didn't know how to do that. That's a super depressing story. Thank yeah, bummer, man. <laughs> Look, it, it's so easy, you know, as you stare down the cusp of 60 to start reminiscing about how much better <laughs> stuff was when, when I was young. But you know, okay, I'm going to go there for a second because, you know, we would get home from school and, you know, my parents were reasonably disciplined about television, except when my mother was watching the Watergate hearings. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, we would basically, you know, did you get your homework done? Yeah, it's, it was quick and easy. Okay, go outside and play. And you're gone, you know, you're gone for four hours and you play kick the can, you play, you know, you play soccer, you play kickball, you make mm -hmm. things up. You make up new games that may be goofy and stupid, but you did them. Yeah. And then you got into some trouble, but you know. Yes. <laughs> some of us got into lots of trouble, but moving on. <laughs> moving uh, on. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the consequences about this. And we broke this up into a couple of different things, physical consequences and psychological consequences. And I just on the physical thing, um, Posture and bone development is an issue that if you're hunched over, you know, then you're going to have some different issues. Um, but then eyesight, I have a doctor friend. I should ask him about it. He's a pediatric ophthalmologist, and um, I should ask him about how eyesight is being impacted by devices. And maybe we'll have him come on at some point. Um, I was just, I, I was just going to suggest that. That'd be a great idea. Yeah. And then the last physical one is is hearing. And if you have little earbuds in your ear and they're turned up loud, I mean, I think we're going to have some issues with people going deaf much sooner than before um, just because they've had little, very low-quality speakers in their ears the whole time. 
that um, were growing up. My generation got warned about the perils of going to, you know, classic rock concerts and mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, those worries are not new. But um, one thing I do want to give Apple a shout out on, and I don't know if Google has replicated this or not, but Apple now maintains a record of the volume that your ears have been exposed to, and it will alert you if you're listening too loudly for too long, Mm -hmm. uh, which is precisely the kind of digital monitoring that I think can be really useful. So, you know, there, there are folks who are paying attention to this a little bit, which is good. Yeah. And really it is, it is very beneficial when the, when the company that makes the device puts things in place to, um, to prevent you from using it too much. I was with some friends this weekend and uh, one of them is a big fan of TikTok. And he said, <laughs> you know, when you get that little warning on TikTok that says you've been scrolling for too long. And then other people at the table said, no, I've never seen that. And <laughs> apparently his usage is so much higher that he has seen it multiple times. But, um, but anyway, that's right. I didn't know. I did not know that TikTok did that. So no, that's good. good I didn't for know me that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the psychological um, issues. Yeah. And, and this is harder, right? Cause you know, these things can be subtler and harder to detect than the fact that your kid can't sit up straight or, you know, is getting a new pair of glasses every six months or something like that. But there are a variety of different psychological uh, issues that people are beginning to watch more closely. I mean, obviously, right at the top of everything, Jethro, is the sense of disconnection, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're staring at a device, you're not necessarily interacting with the people around you in a way, either your friends or your family or something like that. So that's problematic. Uh, certainly the body image stuff has been documented uh, all over the place, you know, particularly for young women, unfortunately, but, you know, to a growing extent for young men as well, who are exposed to these idealized uh, images uh, of people online. And it really can mess you up in terms of how you think you look. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly the fashion industry has been doing that for a long time. So again, not a new phenomenon, but we put it on steroids That's right. on social media. Yeah. So there's a woman named Kim who is, uh, who has agreed to come on the podcast later when she finishes moving and her Instagram handle is embracing underscore reality. And uh-huh. what she does is she shows both sides of social media. So she will, you know, she has an Instagram account and, and, you know, posts these pictures, but then she also shows the other side of it of how much work goes into it, for example, to make it look that way, what it, what it looks like when, you know, you take 50 pictures and then the only one that you keep is this, this one that is perfect. Um, she like gives tutorials on how influencers fake long legs, for example, and other Hmm. things. And anyway, really fascinating. And I was, um, for my new website, resilientschools.com, I was looking for some evidence of of that comparison and how you compare and how that is comparison is a thief of joy, I think the quote goes. And, oh, that's beautiful, yeah. And I found um, her Instagram, and it was just really neat to see how she's, you know, showing that it's not all what it looks like online. And really thinking that that's what it's like all the time can really be disruptive to a young person's brain uh, for 
you know, both boys and girls and trying to figure out what is real and what's fake. And uh, there are a lot of things that are not real online. And there are a lot of things that, you know, people don't show the things that are, uh, that they don't want to show, you know, and sometimes you don't think of that, especially when you're young. Well, and certainly one of the phenomena, and you alluded to it, is this idea that when uh, kids post something, if it doesn't receive enough likes mm-hmm. in the time frame they have in their head, they'll just take it down yeah. on the theory that it's unpopular or put another way, it's not sufficiently popular exactly. to justify being up there. Whereas, you know, if you approach it from the perspective of does this post have value intrinsic to itself, then it doesn't matter how many people like it. Yeah. Which sort of is the underlying theme of my newsletter altogether. <laughs> But there are a couple of others, uh, Jethro, that I want to talk about with respect to the psychological piece that I think they're really important. Obviously, um, suicidal ideation can flow out of the body image and dysmorphia, as is the case with uh, the bullying and cyber harassment that can occur online. But two things I think that we're really going to have to start studying in more detail is the extent to which the use of social media ramps up anger and hostility in all of us. Mm-hmm. That's one. And that's, that's a good chunk, obviously, of the rise of the digital mob. But then this idea of radicalization, that kids go down these rabbit holes and they can get sucked into things that are hugely disturbing. Um, already, we're starting to see some of the reports of the role that 4chan and Discord and YouTube played in the shooting up in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think once we've got more of a comprehensive understanding of that, I think that'll be a great show topic because it does help to illustrate what I would call the ecosystem of hatred. And it's, it's really disturbing stuff. And I say that, by the way, as the parent of someone who loves the gaming world that this guy seems to have come out of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I think about my son being involved in that, it's not comforting at all. Yeah. And the thing that's really challenging is that we we too often as as spectators or commentators, we too often reduce it to um, to very simplistic things. And we have to remember that this is this is all very complex that oh, nobody. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and nobody goes and plays a video game and then says, my next step is to go kill a bunch of people. Like, that just doesn't well, happen. No, but Absolutely right. We, we try to reduce it to that to draw a line. And we have to remember that correlation does not mean causation, that there are many factors that go into it. And it is too complex to simply say, this is why. But this is the key point, And this is why this matters is because all these things coming together make things what I would say unpredictable that you don't know how people are going to respond to all these different inputs, right? There's so many things giving them ideas, giving them perceptions, shaping reality for them that you don't know what is going to come out of it. And, and that's what the real tragedy is, is that there are so many inputs, so challenging to try to figure out what's really going on that, that you just can't, start predicting things like everybody really wants to 
they want to be able to say, well, if if well, you only course, give your, you, yeah, if you only be good not to have this happen, that's right. It, it would be good to not have this happen. But at the same time, we, we think as parents, well, if I do this, then my kid's not going to turn out that way, but right. we can't predict that either. And, and that's what one of the major challenges is, is that we, we could be by having our kids be on social media they could figure out something amazing and connect with the right person and do something incredible. And they can also go in the opposite direction. And then there's this whole gradient in between those that could be so many different things. And that's what I think is so challenging is that we just, we just don't know what we used to know what led to a good life. Now we're not so sure. Does that make sense? There, there, I, I think there are, definitely aspects of that that make sense to me. I think I think the complexity and the multivariant inputs is all spot on, right? Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things, um, one of my college classmates uh, runs a um, program on suicide because her brother committed suicide not long after we got out of college. And um, she was really insistent because she worked on, before starting, she worked at a suicide prevention uh, mm-hmm. organization for two decades. And she was really insistent when we talked about the role of social media in underscoring that you can't draw a line from cyberbullying to suicide. It may be a contributing factor. It could even be the major contributing factor to someone committing suicide, but there's always other things that go into it. Exactly what you're getting at. I think what is useful is again, as we get a fuller picture of what took place and among downloaded the document that purports to be this guy's rationalization, um, to have a conversation about as many of those factors as is possible, just in terms of alerting people to the kinds of things they need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think without us drawing conclusions, that conversation is, is still worthwhile. Yes. Um, to wrap up this, because I think there's some really nice points to leave parents on. Um, what do you do? If you're worried about your kid's screen time, you know, parents are staring down summer, right? When it's always challenging in terms of keeping the kids occupied, you've got work to do you know, not hopefully, but some people may still retain the option of working from home, but I think we're that. So the old dynamic of, you know, my kid's home for eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever the summer is these days. And what do I do with them? And so, you know, this is where we start looking, you know, all of the traditional things, but underscoring the need for balance, you know, screens aren't going to go away over the course of the summer but there's so much opportunity to bring other aspects of their lives to the fore. Yeah. And so finding things to do is super important. Uh, Screen free zones or having a, like in this, like we already say, don't take screens into your bedroom. And so do that, but then also make other places, you know, get involved in playing games with your kids, doing things, like that is super fun teaching them games and letting them play each other. My daughters, for example, they play this game called Nerds pretty much every single night. And <laughs> we we send them down to the bed and then they go play that that game. And I think that having a place for 
that a place for that in your day, not necessarily a physical place, but a time or a, or something is worthwhile. You know, one of the things that we do is that we don't watch, we don't do any screens until two o'clock in the afternoon and in the summer. And so we spend the morning doing other things. And then after lunch, when, when we as parents want to get some stuff done, then we use technology as a babysitter. Wait, are we supposed to do that? No, we're not. Trapped. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. <laughs> no, no. All right. No, look, I mean, let's let's we 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 committed Jethro to grounding this show in reality. <laughs> and the right. reality, the reality is that parents do need to get some stuff done, but it is. I do want to give a shout out to our European friends and neighbors because, well, and actually on the east, on, in the eastern part of the world. Um, just these wonderful concepts of our relationship to nature, which I find personally inspiring. So in Germany, and I'm going to absolutely butcher all of these pronunciations, fair warning, but there's Waldeinsamkeit, which is the feeling of being alone in the forest as a positive psychological good. Uh, probably my favorite is Shinrin-yoku, from Japan, the idea of forest bathing, that you actually have this positive mental value from yourself in the woods. And then up in, I believe this is Norway, live the open air living. And it sounds a little bit like what you were talking about, that for some portion of the day, you get outside regardless of what the weather is and you enjoy the outdoors, away from screens, all wonderful concepts. So. Um, for whatever that's worth, uh, my apologies to our foreign listeners. <laughs> yes, we should be so lucky. Um, we should be so lucky. <laughs> well, I think that's a great, great place to end. Um, find some way to, to, to be at peace with whatever you end up doing and make a plan and stick to it and until it doesn't work and then change it right away. And don't feel guilty about that. But the summertime, it can be a stressful time for everybody um, trying to, like, manage and keep everybody busy. So find a way to, to make that work for you and your family. I think that's really nice. And I will with a shout out to my late mother who uh, believed very strongly that learning to deal with boredom was a crucial and I can, to this day, hear her say, your boredom is not my problem. That's right. <laughs> and that's, those are just great words to live by. And it's a wonderful lesson for children because that is the pool from which creativity springs. Yeah, I like that. All righty. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts to help understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest question or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this podcast. If so, please leave us a five-star rating and share it with your friends. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next time.
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.